This is Nicole Hannah-Jones, creator of the 1619 Project from the New York Times Magazine. The project makes a case that you don't often hear in history textbooks, that slavery was foundational to America. So it wasn't surprising that we ignited a fierce debate among historians about these issues. But that's the power of the New York Times, to spark an important dialogue with bold, rigorous reporting that forces us to examine our assumptions. To learn more, go to nytimes.com slash worth it. Getting eight hours of sleep every night? Check. Eat a quality, plant-based diet? Check. Exercise four or more times a week? Check. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure that you lead a long life. So isn't it time that you were financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? Q Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash naked scientist to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared with other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com slash naked scientist to let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthily. That's healthiq.com slash naked scientists. Welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Kate Lamble, and with Ginny Smith. Hi, Ginny. Hi there. And this week, we'll find out more about the work of Fred Sanger, the double Nobel Prize winning scientist who sadly passed away this week. We'll hear about the bacteria which have collected mammoth DNA from their environment. Plus, we'll be talking about the sense of smell. How does it work? Why is it so subjective? And what would life be like without it? If you've got any questions or comments throughout the show, do get in touch with us. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com, tweet at Naked Scientist, or find us on Facebook. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. Now, before we get stuck into the news, our scientific smell-related teaser for you to ponder during the show this week is, what links asparagus, your gas cooker, and a skunk? So have a think about that. Now, it's time to take a look at what's been making the science headlines this week. Sadly, earlier this week, Fred Sanger, the British biochemist who won two Nobel Prizes, passed away at the age of 95. He's best known for being the father of genomics by developing methods which allowed us to determine the sequence of proteins and DNA. To find out more about his work, we're joined in the studio by Professor Tim Hubbard from King's College London and King's Health Partners. Now, Tim, Fred's one of only four people ever to win two Nobel Prizes. Why was his work so important? So you have to think back to early 40s and 50s, when it wasn't even realised that biology was digital. So you had proteins and it wasn't even clear that they were actually linear sequences of amino acids. So Fred Sanger determined the first protein, insulin, and showed it was a linear sequence. If you have a whole collection of insulin molecules, they're all the same. What do you mean by digital, though? Most of us think of biology as being the study of what's actually there in front of us. Well, digital in the sense that it's all about polypeptides. You have these long chains of sequences. You have long chains of sequences of protein. And later on, this is before the structure of DNA was solved, it was realised that 
DNA encodes the sequence that specifies how to make those proteins. DNA is also a long molecule, and Fred Sanger developed you know, the best method for sequencing that. And that method went on to being used right up to the sequencing of the human genome in 2000. We sort of take it for granted nowadays that we can just sequence DNA. How revolutionary a thought process was this at the time? It's revolutionary in the sense that really difficult process of sequencing proteins was much, much faster to sequence DNA. And that's just got faster and faster over time, such that now you can sequence a whole human genome on a single machine in 24 hours. And it will get faster still. And the applications in healthcare of being able to sequence everybody eventually is enormous. We sort of know the names of Watson and Crick, their household names, the discovery of DNA. Why isn't Sanger, in, in my experience, a household name? Well, I think he didn't want to do that kind of stuff. And he was much more interested in the quite practical things of just doing science. In fact, when he was asked, would the Sanger Institute that was sequencing the human genome, did he want it to be named after him? He said, that was okay, but it had better be good. <laughs> Perfect answer. You were telling me just outside a little bit earlier on, everything he needed to do, if you wanted to do another project, it had to be three times better. Well, I think that was that's the story I was told. And if you look at the the size of the first virus and then the, the mitochondria and then the next thing, they were each roughly three times bigger. And it does show the kind of progression of sequencing technology. It's just got faster and faster and will go on getting faster and faster and cheaper and cheaper. So we're using his discoveries now more and more. Do you think his work will carry on being important over the next 10, 15, 20 years? Yeah, I mean, the sequence of the human genome is completely fundamental it's changed the way biology is being done, the way healthcare is being developed. And it all relates back to these methods, these original methods developed to work on how you could sequence DNA. An amazing man. Thank you very much to Professor Tim Hubbard for telling us about Fred Sanger's work. So this week I've been looking at a story about keeping surfaces as dry as possible. So scientists have got quite good at making so-called hydrophobic surfaces, surfaces that water doesn't like to stick to, it forms beads and it rolls off. But actually for a surface to stay as dry as possible, the water droplets need to bounce off it in the shortest time possible. So a team from Boston University and MIT used a high-speed camera to watch drops bouncing off a hydrophobic surface. And they saw that they bounced symmetrically. So the drops hit the surface, they spread out, then they recoiled back in and bounced upwards. But that meant that the water in the middle wasn't moving for quite a while. So they thought, perhaps we can make this happen a bit faster. So what they did was they added some little ridges onto the surface. And those ridges break up the droplet when it hits it because it means that a bit in the middle is thinner and that bit recoils faster. So your droplet hits the surface, breaks up into two or three smaller droplets and actually bounces off much more quickly so your surface stays even drier. Now what's really interesting here is that they actually found that there are a couple of things in nature that already use this technique that they came up with. The nasturtium plant has leaves which have ridges and veins which do exactly that and so do the wings of the morpho butterfly which is that really beautiful blue and white shimmery butterfly. They do exactly the same thing to keep them dry. Now this is really interesting but it might also have some important implications because there are some circumstances where you really don't want droplets to stay on a surface because they might freeze. And they tested this out by using molten tin and they found that it 
bounced off so quickly that it didn't have time to solidify. So this might be really helpful for, for example, preventing ice from forming on aeroplanes that are flying in freezing rain, which can be a really big problem. I got soaked on my cycle over here. Is this a jacket material that I can use in my day-to-day life? Or are we talking more high-tech than that? I think we're talking more high-tech. I think we've already got materials that are pretty good at keeping you dry in the rain. But here we're talking when things wouldn't bounce off quickly enough. So if you're in a circumstance where that water's going to freeze on you, it could freeze before it bounced off. But with these surfaces, hopefully it would bounce before it could freeze and then you, you solve that problem. Wonderful. Not so useful in my cycle on my way home, but useful, more useful in the long term for other materials. Thank you very much, Ginny. Now, last Tuesday, it was World Toilet Day. Established in 2001, the event seeks to draw attention to global sanitation and health problems associated with a lack of toilets, as well as breaking the taboo associated with the topic. Here's your quick fire science on sanitation and the humble toilet with Simon Bishop and Dominic Ford. In 2002, the United Nations launched eight goals for long-term global development that they wanted to prioritise. Part of the goals was to halve the number of people without access to basic sanitation, such as septic tanks and private cupboard latrines, by 2015. But as of 2011, two and a half billion people still lacked access to these facilities, having to use an uncovered pit latrine or just an open hole in the ground as a toilet. That means that across the world, only four and a half billion people have access to a toilet. On the other hand, six billion people have access to a mobile phone. Lack of sanitation can mean that raw sewage comes into contact with drinking water, leading to widespread infectious disease. More people are killed by diarrhoea every year than AIDS, malaria and measles combined. Diarrhoea is caused by bacteria, viruses and single-celled animals called protozoa. It causes fluid loss and dehydration, which can be fatal. To avoid the problem entirely, community-wide sanitation is needed, as well as encouraging hand-washing with soap. In the UK, engineers may have saved more lives over history than medics. Even the British Medical Journal chose the sanitary revolution as the greatest medical advance since 1840. This was when Edwin Chadwick, a lawyer frustrated with infectious diseases were straining British finances, pioneered the introduction of piped water into people's homes and sewers rinsed with water. Another solution is to seed septic tanks with bacteria to break down human waste. A bacterial group called Geobacter break down sewage and store electrical charge at the same time, turning faeces into batteries. The recently established Reinvent the Toilet Challenge seeks researchers to design cheap-to-use self-cleaning toilets to be used in areas without water, sewage or electricity. So far, this has funded projects to build solar-powered toilets and even microwave-powered waste disposal units. And for just £60, you can always twin your toilet at home with one in an area of need around the world. Thanks to Simon Bishop and Dominic Ford there. And do remember you can get hold of all of our Quickfire Science episodes as their own podcasts from our website, nakedscientist.com forward slash quickfirescience. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Kate Lamble and me, Ginny Smith. Earlier on, we asked you, what links asparagus, a gas cooker and a skunk? We're not going to tell you quite yet, but we've already had a few tweets in in response. Alex, who's at Procrastibaking, excellent name, on Twitter has sent his in, and a couple more as well, but we're going to keep you in suspense for a bit longer. If you want to get in touch with your answer, you can email Chris at The Naked Scientist or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. 
Now, short and damaged DNA fragments are found pretty much everywhere and in some environments they can survive more than half a million years. But this week, a paper published in PNAS showed that bacteria can pick up these stray DNA sequences from their environment and incorporate them into their genomes, even DNA from a 43,000-year-old woolly mammoth bone. To find out more, we're joined by SK Villaslav from the Centre for Geogenetics at the University of Copenhagen. Hi there, SK. Hello. So what was it you decided to look at in this paper? We wanted to investigate if uh, bacteria can actually incorporate all the broken DNA, all the damaged DNA that is in the surroundings, if that can be incorporated into the genomes. Obviously, we have known for a long time that long stretches of DNA from two bacteria that are very closely related can actually be swapped between the cells. But it was unknown whether you can say very short and very damaged DNA, such as ancient DNA, can actually be incorporated into the bacterial genome. And this is what we show is possible in the PNAS paper. So how do the bacteria actually sort of pick up these bits of DNA? It seems like it's actually happening more or less spontaneously. So we think it's when they eat, some of that DNA can then be incorporated into the genomes. Why would they want to do that? Is this useful for them in some way? (laughs) Yeah, it's a good question. You can say the interesting part here, I think, is that in principle that allows for the bacteria to get to stages that might have been lost even for thousands of years. For example, let's say antibiotic resistance. And in this case, you know, a bacteria can actually, by taking up a very short piece of DNA, become antibiotic resistant. So does this have an impact on the way we deal with antibiotic-resistant bacteria? So at the moment, I know there's lots of constraints around medical waste, but they don't have to make sure that the DNA is completely destroyed, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. No, exactly. I think this is something that definitely should be investigated further because, as you rightfully point out, hospitals, etc., I mean, there's, uh, people are taking a lot of care to try killing off bacteria on surfaces, but obviously with alcohol, I mean, that doesn't destroy the DNA totally. And that means that in principle, you can say antibiotic resistant bacteria that has been on surfaces have been killed off, then a new group of bacteria can come and actually incorporate some of that damaged DNA after even weeks or months incorporated that into the genomes and then becoming resistant that way. I mean, one of the big questions, of course, that still remains is how often does this happen in nature? I mean, we know certainly now that it can happen, that it's possible, and it's also possible, you can say, with bacteria that we know are out there in the environment, but it's still an open question how often do it really happen in nature? So we talk about this DNA being damaged. Does that not have a negative effect on bacteria that pick it up if there's something wrong with the DNA? Well, it doesn't seem to be the case. And this was one of the really surprising discoveries. I mean, first we tried with very fragmented DNA and was also surprised that they could take up even things like 20 base pair pieces. But when we additionally introduced a lot of different types of damages, misincorporations, I mean, it was a big surprise to us that they actually take it up anyways. It doesn't seem to hold them back. And then, you know, finally we did the experiment with a grind-up woolly mammoth bone. And this was just to show that it's not only DNA which has been artificially damaged by us or artificially shortened, that if we actually use some DNA which is truly ancient, truly damaged, then the bacteria can still take it up. 
Is there a lot of this ancient woolly mammoth type DNA lying around in the real world? Is this something we should actually be worried about? There's a lot of it hanging around. I don't think uh, the most interesting thing, though, is the mammoth DNA, because what is much more important is that there is tons of ancient bacteria DNA hanging around in the environment. And that bacteria DNA will be source, potential source, for being incorporated into living bacteria. So if you imagine, you know, along riverbanks, along, you can say, the surfaces of land masses, etc., where we all the time get ancient sediments being released out in the ocean, out in the water, etc. And with that, we will release tremendous amounts of ancient bacteria DNA. And the question is then, to what extent do this ancient bacteria DNA come into play? Well, hopefully you'll be able to find out for us. Thanks a lot to SK Villaslav from the University of Copenhagen, who published that this week in PNAS. Now, Kate, I think you've been looking at some more news for us. I have. Well, you think woolly mammoth DNA is out of this world. I've gone slightly further in my quest for science news this week. And this week, a rocket launched from Russia broke the record for the most payloads put into orbit in a single mission. They put 32 different satellites into orbit. The day after, another American rocket put 29 different objects into orbit at one time. Now, I thought satellites were quite big things. When you've seen them in movies, they're pretty big. How can you put 32 of them into one rocket? Well, a lot of modern-day communication satellites are huge. They're about six tonnes and they're about the size of a van. But what we're talking about here is CubeSats. Now, these are tiny satellites and they're about a litre in volume, the same size as a fruit juice carton. And what happens is, basically, when you fill up a rocket, you put the big thing in that you want to, maybe a communication satellite, maybe a telescope, and there's normally a little bit of room left over that you can cram a few bits into. Like if you're packing for your holiday and you think, I can fit an extra pair of shoes in, it'll be fine. Shove them in. What they allow us to do is that they give us a really cheap opportunity opportunity for testing out new equipment. You might think you don't want to test new things out on a multi-million pound space mission, but these are much more economical. So what kind of things are they sending up there? Well, this week, the world's smallest ever satellite was put into space. It's called the Pocket PUCP sensor. It's only eight centimetres long and weighs 97 grams. But you can imagine this is miniaturisation. If we miniaturise things in a workout, we can use them on future space missions and save fuel. Uh, British interests this week, FunCube 1 got put out. That's a satellite that school kids and anyone at home who wants to can have a chat with if you just get a USB dongle. If you just Google FunCube 1, it'll come up and tell you how to do that. So it's a whole range of things, really. Sounds great fun. I've been looking at a story this week, coming back down to earth, all about our memory. So researchers at the University of California have found that even some individuals who have incredible memories for their own lives fall for tricks designed to produce false memories. So we've known for a very long time that the human memory isn't actually very accurate. When we remember something, we're not sort of playing back a film clip. We have to reconstruct the events. And in doing that, quite often things go wrong and we end up with these false memories. But this is a new group of people that have only recently kind of come to light and started being studied, and they have these astonishing memories for their own lives. So if you give them a day, they can usually tell you what day of the week it fell on, they can tell you what they were doing on that day, and also any big public events that happened. And for the facts that can be checked, they're right 97% of the time. I wish I had that. I know, it would be incredible, wouldn't it? So researchers got this group of people and thought, 
well, they've got such good memories, perhaps they won't fall for these false memory tricks. And in learning that, we'll find out a bit more about how memory works. So they tried out several different ways of producing false memories on them. There's a really classic one where you give people a list of related words, but you miss out a really obvious word. So you'd say sugar, honey, sour and several others, but you'd miss out the word sweet. And then when asking people which words were presented, most people think the word sweet was presented. And there there were several other tasks they tried them on. And they found that actually these people were just as likely to be fooled as control subjects. And in some circumstances, they actually had more false memories. So that's quite interesting and quite surprising. But it's important because it suggests that they use the same processes as everyone else when they're recalling things even though their memories are so, so good. So many people have false memories, though. My boyfriend's a documentary maker, and when you're trying to make a documentary, you put out something, you say, I want to meet all the people who were at the first Sex Pistols concert, and so many thousands of people think they were there, resolutely in their mind, when only it only had space for about 150 people. Apparently, you could have filled Wembley eight times over with the number of people who are convinced they were at Live Aid. Well, the thing is, I mean, I'm sure some of those people are lying, but some of them have probably actually convinced themselves they were there. That's kind of like one of the tests they used in here, which is you ask people if they saw a piece of footage from a really famous public event that doesn't actually exist. And a lot of people will claim that they saw that and they really believe they did. And even these super rememberers did, which is really surprising because that's almost an episodic memory. It's, It's an event, but they were still having these false memories. So... It suggests that our way of recalling things is quite similar, even between people who have good memories, people who have bad memories, and people who have these incredible memories. I only wish I had one of those incredible memories. Thank you so much, Ginny. As always, you can find more information, including the references for all the papers we've discussed on our website, nakedscientist.com forward slash news. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Ginny Smith and me, Kate Lamble. Do remember we're asking you throughout the show what links asparagus, your gas cooker and the skunk. Do give us an email, chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. Now on to our main topic for the week. Smell is a poorly understood sense, often thought to be less important than sight or hearing. But strong links with the emotional centres of our brains means that it's important in ways that you might never have imagined. Most of us will have experienced a temporary form of anosmia, or the loss of smell, while suffering from a cold. I did a few weeks ago and it made things taste really weird. But what would it be like to lose the sense permanently? Duncan Bogue, an anosmia sufferer himself, set up the UK's first charitable organisation supporting smell and taste disorder sufferers, The Fifth Sense. I met up with him at the Cambridge Science Centre's special evening event about smell to find out more about the disorder. It's quite a common condition, more common than people think, but obviously if you, if you, if you saw someone in the street who's got no sense of smell, you wouldn't know, would you? There are lots of different things that cause it, head injury, the common cold, chronic sinusitis... And some people are even born with no sense of smell. And is that something you suffer from yourself? Yes, I lost my sense of smell in 2005 after suffering quite a severe head injury. Did you sort of wake up after having been knocked out with this head injury and just suddenly couldn't smell things? Well, I was in hospital for a week, got out of hospital, and the first time I noticed it was the first proper meal I'd eaten after getting out of hospital was a risotto my dad had made and uh, I was having a glass of wine with it, and I was eating and drinking and thinking, this doesn't really taste of anything. There's no flavour. And it was sort of after, as a result of that, and after that I realised that I actually couldn't smell anything at all. 
So what was it like when you realised that? Did it feel like there was something missing in your life? Not at first, no. I went to my doctors to tell them about it and see if, you know, what they'd say. And the response I got was, oh, yes, I've heard about this happen before after a head injury. We don't know much about the sense of smell. There's no treatment available. In fact, there are no cures at all. It might come back of its own accord, um, but if it doesn't, well, that's it. You'll just have to get on with it. At least it's only a sense of smell. It could have been worse. And that was my attitude, really. After that, I thought, well, I've been told nothing can be done. I'm not even going to think about it. I suppose I've buried my head in the sand. I think that would probably be a lot of people's reaction, that of all the senses, smell would probably be one of the least important to lose. I mean, you know, you think of dogs needing a sense of smell, but humans, we don't seem to use it that much. I was aware of lots of ways in which my sort of life had changed over the years following the accident and could never really work out why. Basically, nothing in my life was as as enjoyable or as rich, as colourful, as vivid, any experience as it was before. And it wasn't until years later in 2011 and reading a book about someone else's experience that I actually started to learn about this and learn what the sense of smell actually did for me in the first place that up until that point I'd never even thought about. The thing about smell is it works on a very sort of deep and quite a complex level and it's very much involved with our emotions, memory, with mood... And it's involved in all sorts of different aspects of life, but not in a way we'd ever really appreciate unless we thought about it. So do we know how many people are affected by these sort of disorders? There's never been any sort of study done in the UK to establish the prevalence of anosmia. That's something Fifth Sense is looking to do in due course. We're reliant on estimates that have come from European and American studies, which suggest that around 5% of the population are affected by loss of the sense of smell, whether total or severe reduction in. Fifth Sense has actually recently did a survey of all its members to establish, uh, get some figures and get some data for the quality of life impacts of smell disorders, smell loss. 50% of people surveyed say they suffer from depression. 60% said they experienced feelings of isolation, feeling cut off from friends and family. And 65% say it's really affected their relationship with partners, families and friends. Wow, that's, that's not good numbers. Is there anything that can be done to help sufferers? Is there any way of, of making the loss of smell better or, or just making the quality of life better? The interesting thing is there are potentially treatments available. Now, treatment largely depends upon the cause. In my case, head injury, it can be down to two main reasons, one of which being damage to the frontal lobes of the brain itself. If that's the case, then it's unlikely that it'll ever return. However, there are cases even then where people have spontaneously almost got the sense of smell back after 10 years. There are stories like that. But for people with sinus problems, for people who've suffered smell loss as a result of, um, say, a cold, there are potentially things that can be done. Fifth Sense is working with the sort of handful of leading uh, medical specialists in the UK who have an interest in diagnosing and treating patients with smell and taste disorders, one of which is uh, Mr Carl Philpott, who runs the UK's first NHS clinic specialising in smell and taste disorders. Now, uh, Mr Philpott has said that of the patients that have been through his clinic, about 75% of them have a potentially treatable problem. 
Most people, though, will go to the doctors and are told that nothing can be done. So one of the important things that Fifth Sense is doing is acting as a signpost to these medical specialists for people and sort of saying, look, you know, these guys are out there and treating people. Speak to your GP, try and get a referral to them, and perhaps something can be done. If you'd like to find out more about anosmia or the work Duncan's involved in, head to www.fifthsense.org.uk. If you'd like to get in touch with us and tell us about your experiences with anosmia or ask any questions, you can tweet at Naked Scientists or find us on Facebook. Now, when those of us without anosmia smell something, it's because tiny molecules have travelled up our nose and been detected by sensors. But how exactly this detection works has been the subject of some controversy. Luca Turin was one of the first to suggest that it's not the shape of the molecule, but how it moves that affects the signals sent to our brain and the odour we then smell. I caught up with him to find out how the current shape theory works. The prevailing theory was, and to some extent still is, that the smell of a given molecule is written into its shape. Different receptors in the nose would each feel some part of the molecule and then report to the brain, so to speak. That was the prevailing view. And as I said, I'm pretty sure most people would still think that way. And I proposed a different theory. What made you think that there might be something more to this idea of a lock and a key in these molecules just fitting together? For a start, a theory is a labour-saving device in the sense that if one has a theory of how smell is written into a molecule and you happen to be making, let's say, smelling molecules for fragrance or flavours, you would know how to make one. You, you would know exactly what to put in a molecule in order for it to smell of rose or bananas or whatever. And this is absolutely not the case. In fact, the people who make molecules make thousands and can never predict the smell. The other major problem is the fact that we can smell chemical groups. Let's take an example with SH. The, the SH famously gives virtually any molecule it's in the smell of rotten eggs. How does it probe the fact that there is an SH in all of those molecules and not, for example, an OH, which would not smell of sulfur and would be um, of a very similar shape? So that was the, the thing that really got me interested in and that could not be explained by a shape theory. So if molecules which are so similarly shaped can smell so different, how does your theory differ from that? Well, for a start, it's not really my theory. It was, it was proposed originally in the in 1930s by Malcolm Dyson. And it was basically a very simple, how does a chemist, how did a chemist in those days uh, identify an unknown molecule? And the answer was you put it through an infrared spectroscope and you measure its vibrations. And the vibrations are very, very distinctive, and they tell you about functional groups, they tell you what's in there, and they also, each molecule, because it's the atoms are connected differently, will have a different fingerprint, so-called part of the spectrum. So Malcolm Dyson and others were struck by the fact that a spectroscope pretty much behaved like the nose, in a sense that it gave you the same information. Now, in those days, it was politely received, and in fact, it carried on being politely received for a long time. But as we knew more about the receptors and about biology in general, there seemed to be this insurmountable problem that there's no way of measuring the vibrations with a, a receptor. What I brought to this whole thing in, in 96 was a straightforward biological mechanism, which in fact can deliver a biological spectroscope. And so how do different molecules vibrate differently? A molecule composed of, let's say, 10 atoms has, in the case of 10 atoms, it has 24 different vibrations. 
And if you arrange the same 10 atoms differently, you will find that the vibrations are being changed. A simple analogy of this is if you have two metal bowls of different shapes or different size and you hit them with a wooden spoon, they will make a different sound. The molecule, because of the, the springs connecting the atoms, will have a unique vibrational spectrum. And if you change the connections, the spectrum changes. We previously didn't think that the nose in these receptors could pick up these vibrations. Is it just that our understanding of how biology works is, has proceeded and we, you now think that the nose can pick up these vibrations? Well, yes, there's been a considerable uh, amount of interest in, in a sort of subfield of, of biophysics called quantum biology, which is the realization that in some parts of biology, you just don't understand what's going on unless you bring in quantum mechanics. Now, the mechanism that I proposed, it's a nanoscale mechanism that involves electrons jumping from one place to another in such a way that when they jump, they bump into the, the smelly molecule and make it vibrate. Then you can have a protein-based system that is capable of detecting the vibrations of a molecule that is bound to it. And what evidence do we have for this? It's very nice to say these electrons are jumping from place to place. Presumably, we can't just look down a microscope and see that. So how do you do an experiment to work out how we're perceiving smell? You're absolutely correct that insofar as we haven't been able to measure the electron movements inside smell receptors yet, much more modestly, what we were trying to do, in fact, we succeeded in doing in the last couple of years, is to show that fruit flies can distinguish from each other molecules that are identical in shape and only differ in their vibrations. And the way you do that is actually very simple. You take a known molecule that has a smell, whatever it is, X, and you replace the hydrogens in the molecule with heavy hydrogen. Now, heavy hydrogen, also called deuterium, is exactly the same size and, of course, shape, so to speak, as hydrogen, but it has an extra neutron in the tiny nucleus in the middle of the atom, and so it's heavier. So all the vibrations of the molecule that involve movements of the hydrogens are slowed down because the hydrogens are heavier. So the big question is, do those two molecules smell different? And so we found that, yes, indeed, fruit flies could smell the presence of deuterium. And more recently, we've done the same thing with humans using musks, and we find that humans can tell them apart very easily. You mentioned when this theory was first brought up in the 1930s, you put it that it was received politely. And, and your first experiments were met with a lot of criticism. There was one repeat of one of your experiments that found that humans couldn't tell the difference in smell between this hydrogen and deuterium. How have you reacted to that criticism? Well, first of all, that paper was absolutely correct, it turns out. It appears that if a molecule is small, it has, let's say, in the case of the molecule we're talking about, which is uh, called acetophenone, it has only eight hydrogens. And it's pretty clear that if there is a difference, it's too small for humans to really detect it properly. Our results confirm that study that said that you couldn't smell the, the difference in that particular molecule. But we decided to simply go to a molecule that has more hydrogens on the grounds that the effect would be larger. And that's, that's what happened with musks that have 28 hydrogens you find that people can smell the difference. What future experiments do you need to do for this theory in, in your mind to become fully accepted? Oh, I have absolutely no idea. Max Planck said uh, people don't change their mind, they just die. Many thanks to Luca Turin from the Alexander Fleming Centre in Athens, Greece. So our sense of smell might be down to tiny quantum vibrations in molecules. Ginny, are you convinced or are you one of those people who's going to need to die before they change their minds? 
I, I wouldn't go quite that far. <laughs> it's an interesting idea and, and it definitely seems to give answers for some questions that the shape theory doesn't even try to answer. But I think we need a bit more data before we can definitely be sure. Probably. Well, one question that we are getting some answers in for is our teaser question. What links asparagus, your gas cooker and the skunk? We've got an email in from Mark in Bletchley Towers who suggests maybe asparagus smells like skunkwee and that's what's added to gas to make you be able to smell it if you leave the gas on. Good idea. I think I need that in my house because I'm constantly doing it. But... <laughs> Perhaps not. Yeah, well, actually, while we're talking about things that possibly don't smell all that pleasant, it's quite well known that two people can react very differently to the same smell. So I absolutely love Brussels sprouts, but I know that a lot of people wouldn't agree with me there. They are forced on me by my father every year, but still, no, no, there's no getting used to it. No, I, I think they're delicious. But Darren Logan's joined us and he works at the Sanger Institute here in Cambridge, looking into the genetics underlying our responses to smell. Hi there, Darren. Hello. Thanks for joining us. So... Why do different people respond differently? Why do I love Brussels sprouts and Kate hate them? Well, it all comes down to your genes in the end. We all have olfactory receptor genes, and these are the genes that encode the proteins that detect different smells. And it turns out that we actually have huge numbers of variants of these throughout the population. And so if I have a copy of a gene, and you have a copy of a gene that differs, perhaps I can smell it and you can't. And therefore, I'll develop a preference for it, and you won't because you can't smell it. And when we add this variance across hundreds of genes that are involved in smell, what it ends up meaning is we all smell the world slightly differently from each other. So does that mean that we've actually all got slightly different receptors in our noses? Yes, and that's actually something that has only been realised in the last few years or so. The level of variance with these genes is really quite astounding. In fact, they're perhaps the most variable genes that humans have apart from our immune system. How do you go about studying something like this? It's actually quite hard. So we tend to study model organisms, largely worms, flies and mice. And the reason for this is we can train them to respond to different smells. So when we have different versions of these genes in different animals, we can ask when the animal can smell it, it can be trained to that smell. When it can't, it cannot be trained to the smell. And therefore, by asking how they respond to different smells, we can work out which version of the gene they have. So does that mean you can actually breed mice that can and can't smell different things? Absolutely, yeah. And in fact, we've done so, though we didn't actually mean to. So we have maybe 20 or so inbred lines of mice that we commonly use around the world. And what we're realising is that just by accident, some of those can and can't smell certain smells. What kind of smells are there that are controlled just by one or two genes? A famous example, one of the very earliest ones found in 1977, is one of the commonly used lab mice strains called Black Six. It turns out it can't smell a chemical called isovaleric acid. And isovaleric acid is this smell of sweaty gym socks or blue cheese. So there's this little mouse strain that can't smell cheese. And so in my lab, we're actually working at the moment to try and identify the gene responsible for this. That sounds like quite a good gene to have if you live with men who leave their socks lying around. Absolutely. And actually, <laughs> um, humans also, so these are called specific anosmias, which is, like we heard earlier, a general anosmia is when we can't smell anything. A specific anosmia is when we can't smell one thing. And uh, humans also have a specific anosmia to eyes of lyric acid. So there is indeed people out there who can't smell such things. Oh, lucky people. Now, I think you actually brought with you some little vials of different smells that some of us should be able to smell and some shouldn't based on genetics. Can we have a go? You can, yes. I didn't bring you eyes of lyric acid because it smells so bad that it would stink <laughs> out your studio. I did bring another thing, though. Um, so I'll pass that around and see if one of you can identify what the smell is. Let me have a go. I could definitely smell something. It's quite sweet, but I wouldn't be able to pinpoint it. 
Can I ask, mm. I, I have what my family terms the famous lamble nose. If I have room for extra senses, am I at an advantage here over Ginny? <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is, there is a structural element too. So if you have a good air flow through your nose, for example, and you can often smell better, people who have deviated septums often struggle to smell. Oh. So mm. I can smell it from here, actually. I, I, can definitely, it. I can definitely smell something. It's kind of sweets, like sweet shop, yeah. candy floss type thing. So it's quite are, pleasant. You are close. It is actually um, smell of beta ionone, which is the distinctive smell of parma violets. Oh, yeah. Now you tell me. I can yes. pinpoint it to the, the 70s sweet that you don't want to eat too much of. <laughs> exactly. So um, the interesting thing with this smell is that just this year, in fact, a really beautiful study by a guy called Jeremy McRae, who's a colleague with mine at Sanger, they showed that 18% of the British population can't smell that, will have no ability to smell that whatsoever. But also they showed in a really nice paper that people that can smell this have a greater preference for air fresheners or detergents that have this chemical in it than those who can't smell it. So now we're beginning to understand that our ability to smell different chemicals also influences our choice for consumer products. So the fact that we could all smell that means that we must all have that same gene. That's correct, yeah. And did you bring another one? I did. I brought another one. This one's perhaps slightly easier. I'll pass this one along. That's very, very strong to me. I'm not very good at pinpointing what they are. They should have a new game like Pictionary, but what it it is. Oh, yeah, that's not as pleasant. No, that's pollen-y. That reminds me of hay fever. It's like grass. Absolutely, yeah. So this is something called cis-3-hexanol, also known as leaf alcohol, and it's the smell of cut grass. It's very distinctive. Yeah. Uh, And 3% of British people can't smell that. So again, obviously you two probably can. But you associate it with something negative like hay fever. Yeah, that's definitely an unpleasant smell to me. Well, that's interesting because often it's used, some some people believe that um, cis-3-hexanol has some sort of innate meaning to it. And so it's used often in aromatherapies to relax people. Oh, no, it it makes me think that my eyes are going to start itching and my nose (laughs) is going to start streaming, even though it's not. But it it definitely makes me think of that. Fascinating. So why do we have these differences? Do we have any idea? So it's the extra two theories. Uh, One is that there is some sort of evolutionary advantage for certain smells or not. And um, we don't actually have good evidence for that yet. And perhaps because we haven't studied enough of them. Uh, the other is it's something called genetic drift. Basically, these there's no real um, advantage to smell or, or not smell something. And so over time, the genes mutate and change. So some people can and some people can't. Thanks a lot, Darren. That was Darren Logan from the Sanger Institute in Cambridge. And he's going to be sticking around. So if you've got any questions for him, please do get in touch. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Kate Lamble, and with Ginny Smith. Now, this week, we're looking at our sense of smell. And if you'd like to get in touch and give us a comment or a question or try and answer our quiz question, which this week is what links asparagus, your gas cooker and the skunk, email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists or find us on Facebook. So we've heard so far that smell's really important to allow us to taste food and can even trigger memories. But in some animals, special molecules called pheromones can also trigger certain types of behaviour, like mating. Greg Jefferis from the Cambridge Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology, or the MRC-LMB, lot easier to say, investigates the pathways between smell and behaviour in the fruit fly. So, Greg, what is a pheromone? A pheromone is, uh, I guess, a specialised smell molecule that's used to communicate between individuals of a species. So it's produced by one member of a species and used to signal, for example, to a member of the opposite sex is one of the classic cases, so sex pheromones. So there's normally a specialised detection process as well, and we're particularly interested in what happens within the brain when those odours are detected. If we looked at the pheromones, would it look any different from a normal smell molecule? 
No, not particularly. And in fact, there are some pheromones which can be detected by our main olfactory epithelium, so the nose, that can have very specific meanings for certain species. So if they don't look any different, I suppose it's about how it is received. How does smelling a pheromone get translated into behaviour in animals? So like any odour, the first thing is that this small molecule uh, needs to diffuse up to a receptor at the top of your nose and actually bind to a receptor there. And one of the uh, the key advantages uh, of using insects is that these receptors and molecules have been identified uh, for some time. So once it binds to the receptor, it then makes uh, the neuron on which that receptor sits electrically active. And so you've turned this chemical binding into an electrical signal, which can then talk to the rest of the brain and trigger behavioral responses. And you study this in fruit flies. Why are fruit flies such a great animal to look at this in? So various reasons. There are lots of, you know, people have been studying uh, fruit flies for years. Obviously, there are all sorts of powerful tools. There's also an issue of complexity. Fruit flies have only 50 receptor genes, uh, whereas a mouse has 1,300 olfactory receptor genes. So it's a bit easier to find the receptor for a particular smell in a fruit fly than a mouse. Also, once you've found the receptor, it's a lot easier to do experiments in a mouse, in a fly, a bigger button, to try and figure out what the fly's brain is doing with this information. And that's really the kind of work that my lab is doing. So what pheromones do fruit flies react to? So the one that's been best studied is a pheromone called CVA, cisfaxanal acetate. So this is a molecule that's produced by male flies and signals to both males and females. So uh, it seems to be attractive for females. It makes them more ready to mate with the male but it's uh, repulsive for males. It actually makes them more aggressive, more likely to fight with each other. So this is interesting, right? It's the same molecule, but different effects on the two sexes. That is interesting. We've got an an email in from Theo Gibson who asks us, can humans smell pheromones or is it just a myth? I think it partly depends on your definition of pheromone. So I think one of the big points, at least classically, has been that the pheromone should be a molecule that has uh, some kind of unconditioned response. That is that the first time you smell it, it's going to make you produce some kind of behavior, and you're always going to produce that behavior when you smell the pheromone. Now, of course, you know, we expect most things to be highly contextual, especially in humans, that there are lots of signals that interact and also that there's lots of learning. And most of the sort of work on human pheromones has found it very hard to tease apart sort of learned associations from something that might be innate, as it were. Mm, I can imagine with, with a human, so much of will comes into it as well, that a fruit fly would automatically respond to something, whereas we're able to stop ourselves to a certain extent. Tia goes on to say, um, she read an article a while back about a woman judging a man's breedworthiness based on the smell of a sweaty shirt. Is that true? Uh, so maybe we should bring in Darren here. I think he's uh, he's got lots of experience, uh, at least in dealing with that kind of question, if not with smelling smelly T-shirts. But yeah. So uh, it is true that the study was done that showed that um, people prefer the smell of people who are unrelated to them at certain times of their menstrual cycle, a woman does. And this was classically done by making people wear no toiletries and wearing a white T-shirt and sleeping in that T-shirt and then sniffing it. The most pleasant of experiments. <laughs> So there's quite a long history of these types of experiments, and indeed there appears to be some sort of effect. Quite how it works and what people are smelling, we don't yet know. Thanks very much to Greg. That was Greg Jefferis from the MRC LMB. Now, Darren, I think you told me earlier that you actually have an example of a human pheromone with you. Is that right? This is a chemical called androstenone, and it's first identified in the saliva of male pigs, and it drives female pigs wild. 
And subsequently, it was found in male sweat. And so it was studied because of its pheromonal properties in a pig as a, a putative human pheromone. And uh, what's really interesting about it is it smells very differently to different people. So if you'd like to have a sniff and tell me if you can smell it. This is one of those quizzes that tells you about your personality. <laughs> so a lot, of people can't smell it wrong. A, a lot of people can't smell it at all. Is I it dri- can smell something. It's is not it driving, driving me wild. wild. No, <laughs> It's quite sweet, but quite subtle to me. So that's interesting. And um, what about you, Jeannie? He's definitely worked something out about my personality that I don't want to be revealed on air. I'm not smelling you anything. You can't smell anything. Nothing at all. So, so most people describe this as urinous or sickening or sweaty in smell. <laughs> but a small proportion of people describe it as sweet and a lot of people also can't smell it. So we have, I can't smell it. And so we have one person that can smell it but quite likes yeah. it. So I think there's the other interesting thing about this chemical is irrespective of its potential pheromonal properties is that um, it's perhaps the most variable odour that, that has the most variable responses to smell to it. So whether it's a pheromonal is out, I would say, but it certainly is an interesting smell. Fascinating. Now, we asked you earlier, what links asparagus, a gas cooker and a skunk? Now, we're not going to keep you on tenterhooks any longer. The answer is, it's the chemical that makes them all smell, which is methyl mercaptan. And it's actually added to give natural gas a stink so that you can detect if you've left it on, like you often do in your kitchen, Kate. It also makes some people's urine smell when they eat asparagus. And skunks squirt it all over the place to repel things, make them make them leave them alone. Well, that's one question answered. We've got some more questions in, in for you guys to put to Darren and Greg. Peter just called in. He wants to know to what extent nerve damage affects your sense of smell. He banged his head once, which he says resulted in a temporary loss of smell and a permanent aversion to the smell of vinegar. What's going on there? <laughs> So the effect of um, damage to your brain after a head injury often loses the sense of smell, and that can be for two reasons. Firstly, you can actually have a shearing of the olfactory neurons, which can be quite nasty, and that can often lead to permanent loss. Secondly, you can have essentially bruising at the front of your brain when it hits the front of your skull, because your brain's soft and your skull's hard, so when you have a very jarring motion, you can get bruising, and that can either be permanent or temporary smell loss. Why he lost it to vinegar, I have no idea. <laughs> Great. Now, we've got some questions from Facebook as well. Danny Elegant, brilliant name, wants to know, how does one get used to smells so that it seems like they aren't there anymore? So pretty much any sensory system, you can have adaptation. And in fact, it can be at various levels. People often give the example in you know sort of uh, introductory classes, your clothes, you tend to forget you're wearing them. Obviously, it would be bad news if you weren't wearing them. But you do tend to forget that sensory experience after a while. You get used to it. The same with your eyes. Uh, you'll get used to the light level in a particular environment and their adaptations within the sensory cells. So the same is true in, in most olfactory receptors. And there are also mechanisms downstream within the brain that will modulate your response to particular odors as well. Stephen Cool got in touch over Facebook as well. He said, can you actually smell danger or fear? You hear a lot about animals being able to smell your fear. Is that true? So animals certainly can smell fear. Um, there's such things as chiromones, which are like pheromones but work between species. So some predator odours, for example, act as chiromones so that their prey are innately afraid of them. Whether humans can smell fear, I don't know. However, we certainly do sweat, a sort of more acrid smelling sweat when we're fearful. And perhaps that's what people mean when they say they can smell fear. Now, sticking with animals, Laurie Anna wants to know how dogs smell cancer cells. So uh, dogs have an incredibly well-developed sense of smell. In fact, dogs and rats, we think, are perhaps the best smellers in the animal kingdom. And so uh, a number of groups recently have been using this sort of very sensitive nose that dogs have to see if we can use them to detect chemical patterns that are associated with certain diseases. And it's been done with prostate cancers and also ovarian cancers with women. And it does appear dogs can detect differences in smells in, in urine after people have cancer, 
quite what the chemicals they're smelling are. We don't know. And how we turn that into a product that one could use to diagnose cancer yet, I think it's still very early days. And just finally, Roger Rowe got in touch to ask, why do smells trigger memories? It seems to be true for perfumes and less pleasant odours, but they make you remember things that have happened. I think there's a a bit of debate there. There's certainly a a fairly direct connection between the olfactory system, uh, starting at the nose, and parts of the brain that are involved in storing and, and recalling memories. Whether that very direct connection is important to this thing that we often sort of feel or hear about of odors triggering memories very selectively, I'm not so sure. Another view would be that smells are just very specific things, and that's why they're able to trigger a very specific memory picked out from everything that's in your brain. So I guess there are two possible ideas there. Thank you very much to Darren Logan and Jeg Jefferies there. Finally, closing the show, Hannah Critchlow has been searching high and low to answer our question of the week. This week, we take a squiz at this. My name is Juliet Drogi from St. Louis, Missouri. Today in the garden, I was multitasking a bit too much, and part of this involved putting my glasses on top of my head. Naturally, they fell off. I looked everywhere but couldn't see them, even though they are bright purple. I found them close by where I had surely looked a minute before. Why didn't I see them the first time my eyes passed over that spot? So why could Juliet not find her glasses? She swears she can still see without them. So why did she overlook finding them? Professor Nilly Lavi from University College London. This is because people experience a phenomenon that we term load-induced blindness when the brain is overloaded. Multitasking will often overload the brain and this will result in some parts of the brain not being able to respond to the environment temporarily. So Juliet overloaded her thoughts whilst looking for her glasses. But what was going on in her brain to mean she couldn't see the thing that she was specifically looking for? If a certain information is there, it's not enough that the eye can see it. It's also important that the information is registered in visual cortex. However, in conditions of overload, visual cortex will temporarily not be able to respond to the visual environment and this will result in the experience of blindness. Of course, this is not real blindness, but because visual cortex doesn't register the pair of glasses in the example, we experience as if cortical form of blindness. So information overload leading to visual cortex blindness. Thanks, Juliet, for getting in touch with that question and Nilly for the answer. We next take a squiz at this question. Hi, my name is Nikki and I live in Perth, Western Australia. So my question is, what type of animals sweat? I know that horses do, but do others too? So sweat. Do the birds and bees do it? Or even educated fleas? Or is sweating just limited to humans and... Uh, horses. What do you think? Well, that's an interesting question and actually quite relates to what we've been doing this week. So if you think you know the answer, you can get in touch with us. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can find us on Facebook. That's it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests, Duncan Boke, Darren Logan, Luca Turing, Greg Jefferies, Tim Hubbard and SK Villaslav. Thanks also to Ginny Smith for joining me. Production was by Chris Smith. And one tweet that we have just got in was from at Nick Webb, who actually got the answer right to our question tonight. But he gave us a different answer. It's methanethiol, which is just another name for the same chemical. 
Join us next week when we'll be exploring outer space. We'll be joined by Professor Didier Quellos, who discovered the first exoplanet, Professor Alan Tunnicliffe, who investigates animals which can survive the most extreme environments, and Professor Jerry Gilmore talking about the Gaia expedition, which aims to map our galaxy in three dimensions. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the STFC. I'm Ginny Smith. Thank you for listening. Upwork has the world's largest network of independent professionals. So if you need a UI designer, hey guys, Kevin, a full stack developer, this is Madeline, or a whole team of designers and developers working together, hey, you've got the full team here. Uh, myself, Rachel, Adam, and Stephanie. Hey-o. Hey, everyone. Hey, Hi. how's it going? Hi. Upwork has agencies too, available for six weeks or six months. When you need in-demand talent on demand, Upwork is how.